0: Chapter one Part one of the Sorceress of the Strand This is a Librivox recording. All Librivox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Sorceress of the Strand by LT Mead and Robert Eustace Chapter one Madame Sarah Part one Everyone in trade and a good many who are not, have heard of Warner's agency. The Solvency Inquiry Agency for all British trade its business is to know the financial condition of all wholesale and retail firms from Rothschilds to the smallest sweetstuff shop in Whitechapel I do not say that every firm figures on its books but by methods of secret inquiry it can discover the status of any firm or individual it is the great safeguard to British trade and prevents much fraudulent dealing of this agency I Dixon Drews was appointed manager in 1890 since then i have met queer people and seen strange sights for men do curious things for money in this world it so happened that in june eighteen ninety nine my business took me to madeira on an inquiry of some importance i left the island on the fourteenth of the month by the norham castle for southampton i embarked after dinner it was a lovely night and the strains of the band in the public gardens of funkel came floating across the star-powdered bay through the warm balmy air then the engine-bells rang to full speed ahead, and flinging a farewell to the fairest island on earth, I turned to the smoking-room in order to light my cheroot. "'Do you want a match, sir?' The voice came from a slender, young-looking man who stood near the taffrail. Before I could reply, he had struck one and held it out to me. "'Excuse me,' he said, as he tossed it overboard, "'but surely I am addressing Mr. Dixon-Drews. "'You are, sir,' I said, glancing keenly back at him. "'but you have the advantage of me.' "'Don't you know me?' he responded. "'Jack Silby, Hayward's House, Harrow, 1879.' "'By Jove, so it is!' I cried. Our hands met in a warm clasp, and a moment later I found myself sitting close to my old friend, who had fagged for me in the bygone days, and whom I had not seen from the moment when I said good-bye to the hill in the grey mist of a December morning twenty years ago. He was a boy of fourteen then, but nevertheless I recognized him. His face was bronzed and good-looking, his features refined. As a boy, Selby had been noted for his grace, his well-shaped head, his clean-cut features. These characteristics still were his, and although he was now slightly past his first youth, he was decidedly handsome. He gave me a quick sketch of his history. "'My father left me plenty of money,' he said, "'and the Meadows, our old family place, is now mine. I have a taste for natural history. That taste took me two years ago to South America.' I have had my share of strange adventures, and have collected valuable specimens and trophies. I am now on my way home from Para, on the Amazon, having come by a booth-boat to Madeira, and changed there to the castle line. But why all this talk about myself? he added, bringing his deck-chair a little nearer to mine. What about your history, old chap? Are you settled down with a wife and kiddies of your own, or is that dream of your school-days fulfilled, and are you the owner of the best private laboratory in London?' "'As to the laboratory,' I said with a smile, "'you must come and see it. "'For the rest I am unmarried. "'Are you?' "'I was married the day before I left Para, "'and my wife is on board with me. "'Capital,' I answered. "'Let me hear all about it.' "'You shall. "'Her maiden name was Dallas, Beatrice Dallas. "'She is just twenty now. "'Her father was an Englishman, "'and her mother a Spaniard. "'Neither parent is living. "'She has an elder sister, Edith, "'nearly thirty years of age, unmarried.' who is on board with us, there is also a step-brother, considerably older than either Edith or Beatrice. I met my wife last year in Para and at once fell in love. I am the happiest man on earth. It goes without saying that I think her beautiful, and she is also very well off. The story of her wealth is a curious one. Her uncle on the mother's side was an extremely wealthy Spaniard, who made an enormous fortune in Brazil out of diamonds and minerals. He owned several mines. But it is supposed that his wealth turned his brain— at any rate, it seems to have done so as far as the disposal of his money went. He divided the yearly profits and interest between his nephew and his two nieces, but declared that the property itself should never be split up. He has left the whole of it to that one of the three who should survive the others. A perfectly insane arrangement, but not, I believe, unprecedented in Brazil. Very insane, I echoed. What was he worth? Over 2 million sterling. By Jove, I cried, what a sum! but what about the half-brother? He must be over forty years of age and is evidently a bad lot. I have never seen him. His sisters won't speak to him or have anything to do with him. I understand that he is a great gambler. I am further told that he is at present in England, and as there are certain technicalities to be gone through before the girls can fully enjoy their incomes, one of the first things I must do when I get home is to find him out. He has to sign certain papers, for we shan't be able to put things straight until we get his whereabouts. "'Some time ago my wife and Edith heard that he was ill, "'but, dead or alive, we must know all about him, "'and as quickly as possible.' "'I made no answer, and he continued. "'I'll introduce you to my wife and sister-in-law tomorrow. "'Beatrice is quite a child compared to Edith, "'who acts towards her almost like a mother. B is a little beauty, so fresh and round and young-looking, "'but Edith is handsome, too, "'although I sometimes think she is as vain as a peacock. "'By the way, Druce, this brings me to another part of my story.' The sisters have an acquaintance on board, one of the most remarkable women I have ever met. She goes by the name of Madame Sarah, and knows London well. In fact, she confesses to having a shop in the Strand. What she has been doing in Brazil I do not know, for she keeps all her affairs strictly private. But you will be amazed when I tell you what her calling is. What? I asked. A professional beautifier. She claims the privilege of restoring youth to those who consult her. She also declares that she can make quite ugly people handsome. There is no doubt that she is very clever. She knows a little bit of everything, and has wonderful recipes with regard to medicine, surgery, and dentistry. She is a most lovely woman herself, very fair, with blue eyes, an innocent childlike manner, and quantities of rippling gold hair. She openly confesses that she is very much older than she appears. She looks about five and twenty. She seems to have traveled all over the world— and says that by birth she is a mixture of Indian and Italian, her father having been Italian and her mother Indian. Accompanying her is an Arab, a handsome, picturesque sort of fellow, who gives her the most absolute devotion, and she is also bringing back to England two Brazilians from Para. This woman deals in all sorts of curious secrets, but principally in cosmetics. Her shop in the Strand, could I fancy, tell many a strange history. Her clients go to her there, and she does what is necessary for them— It is a fact that she occasionally performs small surgical operations, and there is not a dentist in London who can vie with her. She confesses quite naively that she holds some secrets for making false teeth cling to the palate that no one knows of. Edith Dallas is devoted to her. In fact, her adoration amounts to idolatry. You give a very brilliant account of this woman, I said. You must introduce me to-morrow. I will, answered Jack with a smile. I should like your opinion of her— "'I am right glad I have met you, Druse. "'It is like old times. "'When we get to London, "'I mean to put up at my townhouse in Eaton Square "'for the remainder of the season. "'The medals shall be refurnished, "'and B and I will take up our some sometime in August. "'Then you must come and see us. "'But I am afraid before I give myself up to mere pleasure, "'I must find that precious brother-in-law, "'Henry Jocum Silva. "'If you have any difficulty, apply to me,' I said. "'I can put at your disposal, "'in an unofficial way, of course.' "'agents who would find almost any man in England, dead or alive. "'I then proceeded to give Selby a short account of my own business. "'Thanks,' he said presently. "'That is capital. You are the very man we want.' "'The next morning after breakfast, "'Jack introduced me to his wife and sister-in-law. "'They were both foreign-looking, but very handsome, "'and the wife in particular had a graceful and uncommon appearance. "'We had been chatting about five minutes,' when I saw coming down the deck a slight, rather small woman, wearing a big sun-hat. "'Ah, madam!' called Selby. "'Here you are. I had the luck to meet an old friend on board, Mr. Dixon Druce, and I have been telling him all about you. I should like you to know each other. Druce, this lady is Madam Sarah, of whom I have spoken to you. Mr. Dixon Druce, Madam Sarah.' She bowed gracefully, and then looked at me earnestly. I had seldom seen a more lovely woman. By her side both mrs Selby and her sister seemed to fade into insignificance her complexion was almost dazzlingly fair her face refined in expression her eyes penetrating clever and yet with the innocent frank gaze of a child her dress was very simple she looked altogether like a young fresh and natural girl as we sat chatting lightly and about commonplace topics I instinctively felt that she took an interest in me even greater than might be expected upon an ordinary introduction. By slow degrees she so turned the conversation as to leave Selby and his wife and sister out. And then, as they moved away, she came a little nearer, and said in a low voice, "'I am very glad we have met. And yet how odd this meeting is. Was it really accidental?' "'I do not understand you,' I answered. "'I know who you are,' she said lightly. "'You are the manager of Werner's agency.' "'its business is to know the private affairs of those people "'who would rather keep their own secrets. "'Now, Mr. Druce, I am going to be absolutely frank with you. "'I own a small shop in the Strand, a perfumery shop, "'and behind those innocent-looking doors "'I conduct the business which brings me in gold of the realm. "'Have you, Mr. Druce, any objection to my continuing "'to make a livelihood in perfectly innocent ways?' "'None whatever,' I answered. "'You puzzle me by alluding to the subject.' I want you to pay my shop a visit when you come to London. I have been away for three or four months. I do wonders for my clients, and they pay me largely for my services. I hold some perfectly innocent secrets, which I cannot confide to anybody. I have obtained them partly from the Indians, and partly from the natives of Brazil. I have lately been in Para to inquire into certain methods by which my trade can be improved. And your trade is, I said, looking at her with amusement and some surprise. "'I am a beautifier,' she said lightly. She looked at me with a smile. "'You don't want me yet, Mr. Druce, but the time may come when even you will wish to keep back the infirmity's years. In the meantime, can you guess my age?' "'I will not hazard a guess,' I answered. "'And I will not tell you. Let it remain a secret. Meanwhile, understand that my calling is quite an open one, and I do hold secrets.' I should advise you, Mr. Druse, even in your professional capacity, not to interfere with them. The childlike expression faded from her face as she uttered the last words. There seemed to ring a sort of challenge in her tone. She turned away after a few moments, and I rejoined my friends. You have been making the acquaintance with Madame Sarah, Mr. Druse," said Missus Selby. "Don't you think she is lovely? She is one of the most beautiful women I have ever seen," I answered. "'but there seems to be a mystery about her.' "'Oh, indeed there is,' said Edith Dallas gravely. "'She asked me if I could guess her age,' I continued. "'I did not try, but surely she cannot be more than 5 and twenty. "'No one knows her age,' said Mrs. Selby, "'but I will tell you a curious fact which perhaps you will not believe. "'She was bridesmaid at my mother's wedding thirty years ago. "'She declares that she never changes, and has no fear of old age.' "'You mean that seriously?' I cried, but surely it is impossible. Her name is on the register, and my mother knew her well. She was mysterious then, and I think my mother got into her power, but of that I am not certain. Anyhow, Edith and I adore her, don't we, Edie? She laid her hand affectionately on her sister's arm. Edith Dallas did not speak, but her face was careworn. After a time she said slowly, "Madam Sarah is uncanny and terrible.' There is perhaps no business imaginable, not even a lawyer's, that engenders suspicions more than mine. I hate all mysteries, both in persons and things. Mysteries are my natural enemies. I felt now that this woman was a distinct mystery. That she was interested in me I did not doubt, perhaps because she was afraid of me. The rest of the voyage passed pleasantly enough. The more I saw of Mrs. Selby and her sister, the more I liked them they were quiet, simple, and straightforward. I felt sure that they were both as good as gold. We parted at Waterloo, Jack and his wife and her sister going to Jack's house in Eaton Square, and I returning to my quarters in St. John's Wood. I had a house there, with a long garden, at the bottom of which was my laboratory, the laboratory that was the pride of my life, it being, I fondly considered, the best private laboratory in London. There I spent all my spare time making experiments, and trying this chemical combination and the other, living in hopes of doing great things some day, for Werner's agency was not to be the end of my career. Nevertheless, it interested me thoroughly, and I was not sorry to get back to my commercial conundrums. The next day, just before I started to go to my place of business, Jack Selby was announced. "'I want you to help me,' he said. "'I have been already trying, in a sort of general way, to get information about my brother-in-law.' but all in vain. There is no such person in any of the directories. Can you put me on the road to discovery?' I said I could, and would if he would leave the matter in my hands. "'With pleasure,' he replied. "'You see how we are fixed up. Neither Edith nor B can get money with any regularity until the man is found. I cannot imagine why he hides himself.' "'I will insert advertisements in the personal columns of the newspapers,' I said, and request anyone who can give information to communicate with me at my office.' I will also give instructions to all the branches of my firm, as well as to all my head assistants in London, to keep their eyes open for any news. You may be quite certain that in a week or two we shall know all about him. Selby appeared cheered at this proposal, and having begged of me to call upon his wife and her sister as soon as possible, took his leave. On that very day advertisements were drawn up and sent to several newspapers and inquiry agents, but week after week passed without the slightest result. Selby got very fidgety at the delay. He was never happy except in my presence, and insisted on my coming, whenever I had time, to his house. I was glad to do so, for I took an interest both in him and his belongings, and, as to Madame Sarah, I could not get her out of my head. One day Mrs. Selby said to me, "'Have you ever been to see Madame? I know she would like to show you her shop and general surroundings.' "'I did promise to call upon her,' I answered, "'but have not had time to do so yet.' "'Will you come with me to-morrow morning?' asked Edith Dallas suddenly. She turned red as she spoke, and the worried, uneasy expression became more marked on her face. I had noticed for some time that she had been looking both nervous and depressed. I had first observed this peculiarity about her on board the Norham Castle. But as time went on, instead of lessening, it grew worse. Her face, for so young a woman, was haggard, and she started at each sound, and Madame Sarah's name was never spoken in her presence, without her evincing almost undue emotion will you come with me she said with great eagerness i immediately promised and the next day about eleven o'clock edith Dallas and I found ourselves in a hansom driving to madame Sarah's shop we reached it in a few minutes and found an unpretentious little place wedged in between a hosier's on one side and a cheap print seller's on the other in the windows of the shop were pyramids of perfume bottles with scintillating facet-stoppers tied with colored ribbons. We stepped out of the hansom and went indoors. Inside the shop were a couple of steps, which led to a door of solid mahogany. This is the entrance to her private house, said Edith, and she pointed to a small brass plate on which was engraved the name Madame Sarah Parfumuse. Edith touched an electric bell, and the door was immediately opened by a smartly-dressed page-boy. He looked at Miss Dallas as if he knew her very well, and said, "'Madam is within and is expecting you, miss.' He ushered us both into a quiet-looking room, soberly but handsomely furnished. He left us, closing the door. Edith turned to me. "'Do you know where we are?' she asked. "'We are standing at present in a small room, just behind Madame Sarah's shop,' I answered. "'Why are you so excited, Miss Dallas? What is the matter with you?' "'We are on the threshold of a magician's cave,' she replied. "'We shall soon be face to face with the most marvellous woman in the whole of London. There is no one like her.' "'And you fear her?' I said, dropping my voice to a whisper. She started, stepped back, and with great difficulty recovered her composure. At that moment the page-boy returned to conduct us through a series of small waiting-rooms, and we soon found ourselves in the presence of Madame herself. "'Ah,' she said with a smile, This is delightful. You have kept your word, Edith, and I am greatly obliged to you. I will now show Mr. Drew some of the mysteries of my trade. But understand, sir, she added, that I shall not tell you any of my real secrets. Only, as you would like to know something about me, you shall. How can you tell that I should like to know about you? I asked. She gave me an earnest glance, which somewhat astonished me, and then she said, Knowledge is power. Don't refuse what I am willing to give." Edith, you will not object to waiting here while I show Mr. Druce through the rooms? First observe this room, Mr. Druce. It is lighted only from the roof. When the door shuts, it automatically locks itself, so that any intrusion from without is impossible. This is my sanctum sanctorum. A faint odor of perfume pervades the room. This is a hot day, but the room itself is cool. What do you think of it all? I made no answer she walked to the other end and motioned me to accompany her there stood a polished oak square table on which lay an array of extraordinary looking articles and implements stoppered bottles full of strange medicaments mirrors plain and concave brushes sprays sponges delicate needle pointed instruments of bright steel tiny lancets and forceps facing this table was a chair like those used by dentists above the chair hung electric lights and powerful reflectors and lenses like bull's-eye lanterns. Another chair, supported on a glass pedestal, was kept there, Madame Sarah informed me, for administering static electricity. There were dry cell batteries for the continuous currents, and induction coils for ferratic currents. There were also platinum needles for burning out the roots of hairs. Madame took me from this room into another, where a still more formidable array of instruments was to be found. Here were a wooden operating table, and chloroform and ether apparatus. When I had looked at everything, she turned to me. "'Now you know,' she said. "'I am a doctor, perhaps a quack. These are my secrets. By means of these I live and flourish.' She turned her back on me and walked into the other room with the light, springy step of youth. Edith Dallas, white as a ghost, was waiting for us. "'You have done your duty, my child,' said Madame. "'Mr. Druce has seen just what I want him to see.' I am very much obliged to you both. We shall meet to-night at Lady Farrington's at home. Until then, farewell. End of Part 1 of Chapter 1